podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Wednesday. The Bairn has been shipped off to nursery. The pot of Yorkshire is on the go and I'm going to take a deep dive into the decade without a Super League and to the decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and to the football of its time. This is, of course, the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast. No scary owners, for the most part, here from America to steal our football away from us. It is episode 38, and today we're going to be talking about Manchester City pre the takeover in 2008 and how they did in the Premier League. We're going to be looking at a rivalry from the ages, Chelsea versus Liverpool, primarily in Europe for that one. And the table never lies goes to Italy and to the Calcio Poly ridden season of the 2005-06 season and as a wee bit of administration before we start here please leave us a five-star review on wherever you get your podcast feed it helps us immeasurably help this content get out to more people and it's where this nostalgia notice nostalgia podcast is every single wednesday on our notice on our podcast feed acast spotify and apple as always let's go on with today's show shall we Now, as we're speaking today, Manchester City are the favourites to win the Champions League this season, of course. That is whether or not it goes ahead as planned, which, as I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to you on Monday today. So this could all change by Wednesday in terms of their odds with the bookies as it stands. Regardless, on January the 1st, 2000, Manchester City were at top of the table, just like they are now, except that table... Back in 2000 was the top of Division 1 and they were 7 months removed from Tier 3, Division 2 at the time. Fulham romped to the title that season, Walsall quickly followed them into the second tier in the automatic spots. Alongside Manchester City in the playoffs that year, it was Gillingham, it was Wigan Athletic and it was Preston North End. On the week where Manchester United completed a stunning last minute comeback in Barcelona to win the Champions League against Bayern Munich, in 1999, Kevin Harlock and Paul Dickoff scored two stoppage time goals to equalise for Manchester City against the Jills late on 2-2 at Wembley. Nicky Weaver provided the heroics in net and alongside Weaver were the likes of Lee Crooks, Richard Edgehill, Gerard Vakins, Andy Morrison in defence. You've got Kevin Harlock, Michael Brown, Jeff Whitley and Terry Cook in midfield and of course the heroes of Paul Dickoff and Sean Gota up front in a 4-4-2. The final game of the 2000s for Manchester City, 3-0 away at Wolves in the Premier League. Shea given in net, Mika Richards, Pablo Zabaleta, Colo Torre and Vincent Company in defence. Stephen Ireland, Martin Petrov, Gareth Barry, Nigel De Jong in midfield and Carlos Tevez and Craig Bellamy up front. 11 internationals there as Manchester City under Roberto Mancini were looking up rather than down. But to get there, they had to go the last 10 undefeated in return to the top flight in the 1999-2000 season under Joe Royal. Sean Gota top scored Joe Royal took them back to where they belonged in the Premier League. And in that first season in the Premier League, George Weah signed at Manchester City. Who can remember him at the main road? Not me, certainly. He signed well beyond his peak, though, after a spell with uh, Chelsea, of course. And signings that were more of Manchester City's ilk at the time were the likes of Paolo Wanchop, Haaland, although not that one. This one was Alfinger, not 
Erling Braut, Haaland and Richard Dunn began his legacy at Manchester City, signing from Everton. You've got Steve Howie coming in, Darren Huckerby coming in. They hadn't won loads at Manchester City this season. They'd beaten Sunderland at home, Bradford at home. They'd won away at Elland Road, which was a shocking result, probably their best all season. They'd won away at Southampton too. The first Manchester derby in six years was heavily, heavily billed by Sky at the time. It came in late November and it was almost a damp squib and it was always going to be in the uh, insane build-up to the match. David Beckham scoring a free kick within three minutes. Alex Ferguson wasn't even at the match in one of the two or three occasions where he didn't attend a Manchester United match in his 27 years, almost 27 years, at the club. The reverse fixture was a draw, but that um, sort of paling into comparison really because it's more famous now for... Roy Keane's horror tackle on Haaland, uh, one that the Norwegian claimed ended his career, but he played a few few days or weeks later for the national team on that one. And obviously, Roy Keane got an elongated suspension for that one by claiming he went out to hurt him. Of course, that season, United won the league again. City had a mini revival with the wins against Leicester and West Ham and obviously the draw at Old Trafford there, but a loss to high-flying Ipswich, Ipswich who came up with City and finished fifth, meanwhile... City finished 18th and 19th, of course, at that time at least, meant relegation. Back in the second tier, Sean Goat got 32 more goals. They fed the Goat and he definitely scored that season and uh, City bounced back at the first time of asking in emphatic fashion. They had the Centurions of 2018 under Pep Guardiola. They almost, almost had the Centurions of Kevin Keegan in 2002 with 99 points in what we now call the championship. They were back in the big time. Keegan was the manager with a big promises. They've got Nicholas and Elka up front. Peter Schmeichel in goal. The top half was the aim. They won the Manchester Derby, a first Manchester Derby win since 1989. You've got Sean Goethe scoring that memorable couple of goals. You've got the Gary Neville mistake. You've got the the solid daggers between Gary Neville and Peter Schmeichel. So on Neville's side with that one. And ninth was achieved in the league. A best finish for City since the first ever Premier League season of 92-93. We've got the likes of Nicholas Jensen at City. You've got Sylvan Distan at the back. Sundry High on the wing back as well. You've got Ali Benabia, Eyal Berkovic and God rest in Mark Vivian Foe. You've got Robbie Fowler joining. You've got Sean Wright Phillips coming through the ranks. And this was a team that took four points off Man United. They won at Anfield. They beat good teams in Newcastle and Everton at the time. In the following season, the upward trajectory was supposed to continue. They were supposed to get to Europe. It was supposed to be the start of of something special. And they started very well, uh, but in between November the 1st and February the 21st, they didn't win a single game in the league. The likes of a young Daniel Van Buyten in the back. You've got David James signing in net. Claudio Reyna. Another son, another father of um, a Borussia Dortmund prodigy. Gio Reyna, of course. You've got Steve McManaman, Joey Barton, Trevor Sinclair, Nicholas Anelka. He would, of course, bang in 24 goals in 43 games. And it was a good blend of youth and experience with uh, James Reyna, McManaman, Sinclair, Anelka, Fowler. Bringing the experience, you've got right Phillips, you've got Barton, Van Buyten. On paper, it was a good... Uh, it was a good combination, but in the end, only Anelka, right Phillips and Fowler scored 10 plus goals. They were beaten at Old Trafford twice, uh, one in a fiery Valentine's Day Cup match in the FA Cup, one that I was uh, privileged to 
privileged enough to be out featuring a Gary Neville headbutt on uh, Steve McManaman and there. Well, that's by the by. It was only one of their nine Premier League wins came in the 4-1 thrashing of Manchester United. Probably the most embarrassing United defeat in the Manchester derby until obviously the 6-1 in 2011 and the best derby result for City since the September 1989 win, a 5-1 win then on that day where the Manchester United scorer was Mark Hughes, if you if you wanted to know. City would lose an Elka for the 2004-05 season, an Elka going to Turkey and to Fenerbahce and City wouldn't replace him. They signed such luminaries as um, Kiki Musampa and Danny Mills. Kevin Keegan sacked in early March with a club 12th, a club filled with unfulfilled promises of Europe and they'd been in what is now known as the Etihad for 18 months but still mid-table, they didn't kick on commercially and on the pitch as well. Stuart Pearce comes in, Pearce steers them to an undefeated final eight games and City finishing on 52 points in eighth place but of course, despite those undefeated games at the end of the season missed opportunities and they would rue that final game that missed opportunity the 1-1 draw the mad game that we've covered on this show before between Manchester City and Middlesbrough a game where David James went up front for a bit despite Jamie Mackey being being on the bench the draw that meant Manchester City missing out on the UEFA Cup a draw that meant Middlesbrough went into the UEFA Cup and of course we know the rest of the story Middlesbrough would reach the final in that mesmeric run, the comebacks against Basel, against Stour Bucharest. Meanwhile, City that season finished 15th, whilst Middlesbrough were going on to bigger and better things, those things being severe in the UEFA Cup final, albeit losing 4-0. And in spite of the 15th place finish the following season, Manchester City still managed to get a win at home to United in the big derby. And by this point, as a United fan at least, it seemed as though it was becoming customary. By this point, United were in a bit of a dip. They hadn't won the league since since 2003. You've got Trevor Sinclair, Darius Vassell and Robbie, uh, Robbie Fowler with the goals there. And Sean Wright Phillips, a man who had scored in the 4-1 win the season prior, he'd been sold and his sale was, was sorely felt by City. You've got Vassell and Georgia Samaras. Uh, they came in, but they didn't really replace the position that they needed. And the positives I can sort of glean from this time for City in terms of playing staff was Richard Dunn and Sylvan Distan. I think they made for a really good partnership at the back. You've got Joey Barton coming through quite well. Trevor Sinclair was... He had, he had a good time at City, I think. And you've got Darius Vassell and Andy Cole scoring 17 goals between them in the Premier League. And the following season, though... It would turn out to be Stuart Pearce's last and it would be nothing short of a disaster. They scored 29 goals as a team in the Premier League all season, 10 of which came at home. And Giorgio Samaras's double against Everton on New Year's Day in 2007 were the last goals that Manchester City fans would see at the City of Manchester Stadium under Stuart Pearce. Stuart Pearce would be gone. They wouldn't even beat Manchester United in their routine home win. United rubber stamping their title credentials, their title win with a 1-0 win courtesy of Cristiano Ronaldo on the penultimate weekend of the season. And the only positive that I can really I can really take from this season is Mika Richards bursting onto the scene. You've got Stephen Ireland coming through the ranks too. Uh, but in terms of goals, obviously 29 as a team isn't fantastic. You've got Joy Barton as, as uh, City's top goal scorer and six goals, which is embarrassing. Samaras has four, half of which came in that win against Everton. And City's, City would finally score at home again, and by which point Barton was gone and the manager was gone. The manager, though, for the 
next win, the next goal at the Etihad was Sven-Goran Eriksson and of course we had new owners. The Thai Prime Minister Thaksin Sinuatri came in as we know now that ownership would collapse dramatically the following season but City would bring in players as a result. You've got Elano, he was a hit for a good two to three years. You've got Giovanni coming in, Benjani, Martin Petrov, they were they were decent for a first year or two. Giovanni would go to, of course, Hull City the following season. Big numbers were being thrown around more would come in the following season and obviously beyond that. Um, but not just yet, Joey Barton would, as I said, the previous season's top scorer, he was out to Newcastle, but City would get their first home goal in eight months in a 1-0 win. Yeah, it, it seemed okay at the time, but the team they beat were Derby in that 1-0 win. Derby, of course, in the 2007-8 season would go down as the Worst Premier League team of all time, 11 points for Derby there, but they would follow that up with a 1-0 win, a similar 1-0 win, but in the Derby again, they'd rolled back from the, uh, what's a, just a bump in the road, the 1-0 defeat that May, to follow out with a with a win against United in the Derby at home again, as was the style, really, Giovanni with a, an absolute blockbuster of a goal. And a, a league double was confirmed that February in 2008 on the 50th anniversary of the Munich air disaster commemorated by a Benjani double at Old Trafford. City made a promising start to that season under Sven but five wins after the new year meant that Sven was sacked. After the now iconic 8-1 defeat to Middlesbrough on the final game of the season a picture a picture which often circulates Twitter as the sort of the final City game pre-oil pre-money pre-takeover which isn't quite the case. City were purchased on deadline day on September the 1st, 2008. Um, that was preluded by a loss at Villa Park in the opening day of the 2008-9 season and then two wins over West Ham and Sunderland, two 3-0 wins over West Ham and Sunderland. And that marked the start of Mark Hughes' reign as manager of the club. And September the 1st, 2008, now iconic in deadline day terms, now iconic, of course, in the history of Manchester City is which, where it all changed. Dimitar Berbatov was earmarked as a potential new signing, a, a big statement of intent from the City, the City board, the new City board, but Manchester United would get them under their, from under their noses. Some consolation though was Rubinho, of course, coming in, thinking though he was signing for Chelsea. But he, uh, he would have an impact. His top squad wouldn't perform too well away from home Um reaffirming the stereotypes that South Americans didn't like British weather, but that's a story for another day. Um, in fact, it was the low-key signings of Vincent Company, which he was signed from. Six million from Hamburg. Um, Pablo Zabaleta, also six million. He came in from Espanyol. They would prove pivotal in the long term. They would be there for the, for the league title in 2012. You also got Nigel de Jong, also from Hamburg. He came in. He was amazing in the first few seasons he was at City also there as part of the league winning team in 2012 you also got Shea Given, Wayne Bridge, Craig Bellamy they followed in the winter but it was company in Zabalette who would be the stalwarts company of course he would end up with the statue so to speak of course his potential wouldn't be realised until Mark Hughes was out of the job Mancini came in in December 2009 turned them into a a quote unquote big six club Um, they won the cup in 2011 tore that Banner down in Old Trafford, which counted down how long they would have to wait for a for a trophy. They won the league the following year and have become good, or rather, 
or have a rich enough to be considered for a leeching, fun-sucking, quote-unquote, Super League a decade on. So I asked, in happier times, who is the greatest Manchester City player of the 2000s? Now, we had a couple of suggestions here. Lelouch says, Sean Wright Phillips, which I think is inarguably one of the better players that Manchester City had brought through the academy around that time. Harry Holland says, Nicholas Anelka, very different way of um, gauging the success there. Anelka got a fantastic amount of goals. This is obviously pre-Aguero and pre the times where City were used to a fantastic goal scorer up front. Anelka was fantastic. It was obviously going to do it again for Bolton, again for Chelsea as well. Ten in the whole podcast, he says, Richard Dunn and Stephen Island. And again, Richard Dunn is probably, he was more well known for for winning the Player of the Year award again and again and again around this time. And yeah, you, you can't really look no further than Richard Dunn. I think Stephen Island did it more. I mean, it, it was technically 2000s, probably did it more in the limelight post-takeover and post-Joey Barton. But Stephen Allen's still a fantastic player for City around that time. But my two picks are probably going to be Sean Wright-Phillips and Richard Dunn. After this short break, we'll be staying in England because we're going to be looking at a rivalry for the ages. It's Chelsea versus Liverpool. Where were you on New Year's Day in 2000? Well, Liverpool, they were fourth. Chelsea, they were sixth. And there was... uh, a little-known League One club called Sunderland in between them in fifth place, newly promoted Sunderland. Liverpool and Chelsea hadn't been a a Premier League rivalry as such in the opening days of the Premier League, and probably the most notable thing to have happened between the two teams was Phil Babb's battle with the goalposts at Anfield in uh, 97 or 98, I think it was, yeah, wincing-inducing uh, tackle on the goalposts there. But, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up on YouTube. I'm not going to describe it to you here today. <laughs> Liverpool, they had finished once outside the top two between 1973 and 1991. And in the 90s, they were in, they were sort of in the midst of a post-Kenny Dalglish hangover world. Graeme Souness had come and gone as manager. So too had Roy Evans. Gerard Houllier was his number two stroke um, joint manager for a time in 98-99, but he was now solely in charge. Liverpool had won an FA Cup in 1992. They'd won a League Cup in 1995, both to lower league opposition in Sunderland and Bolton, respectively. They'd sort of finished inoffensively between 8th and 3rd, not really challenging domestically apart from the two cup competitions, which I've just mentioned. They had a crop of young stars that were, for better or worse, known as the Spice Boys for the the attire chosen in the build-up of the 1996 FA Cup final, again another final in which Liverpool lost. You've got the likes of Fowler, McManaman, McAteer, Owen Carragher, Gerard, of course. They wouldn't reach the heights, though. They wouldn't win another trophy aside from the two Cups in the early to mid-90s. Chelsea, on the other hand, they were 11 years removed from scrabbling around in Division 2 at the turn of the millennium. They had a smattering of finals in the early 70s where they won the FA Cup, they won the Cup Winners' Cup, and that era was only bettered by the under the stewardship of Rude Hullet and Gianluca Viali. Viali's days were numbered at Chelsea in spite of the League Cup, Cup Winners' Cup and FA Cup that they won in the space of 14 months dramatically. Gianfranco Zola, Roberto Di Matteo, those kinds of players. Fantastic team there. Another great cup team, really, in the Premier League era. Claudio Ranieri was in. Chelsea and Liverpool at this time were pragmatising, they were modernising. This was the new 21st century football. We had the big six, not in a Super League sense. We had Newcastle and Liverpool, the resurgent underdogs. 
youthful teams. You've got Liverpool, they were sleeping giants. Chelsea were sort of somewhere in between there. Alex Ferguson were adapting to adapting at Manchester United to Arsene Wenger's French Revolution, although he would continue to be supremely successful, of course, coming off the back of that treble in 99 and winning the first two leagues of the new millennium. But for all of the Man United versus Liverpool, Man United versus Arsenal, Arsenal versus Chelsea, Manchester United versus Man United wasn't really revived yet. The rivalry of the 2000s for me, between English clubs, was to be between Chelsea and Liverpool. Man United and Arsenal's rivalry from the late 90s wasn't sustained. It sort of fizzled out when Arsenal's trough began after the win of the FA Cup in 2005. That coincided with United's mini slump at the time. They wouldn't win the league between... 2003 and 2007 and wouldn't even look like winning the league obviously this obviously coincided with another revolution the revolution of the special one of Jose Mourinho we do around this time have Liverpool and Chelsea firmly ensconced in this top four fight for Champions League football we do have that 20 million pound match but for me the rivalry doesn't begin in earnest until 2005 because the the matches of the early 2000s, aside from that £20 million match, they were they followed the similar pattern from the 90s. It was fairly even, wins either way. The odd cup contest, of course, they would rarely inhabit the same European competition. In the season where Liverpool won the UEFA Cup in 2001, Chelsea were in that competition as well, but they were beaten by Swiss opposition in the very first round. When Chelsea played in only their second ever Champions League season in 2003-04, they, of course got there by beating Liverpool to fourth place so they wouldn't inhabit the same competition there. Liverpool had continued their pattern in the league, inoffensively finishing within the top seven. Chelsea were doing so too, a couple of sixth places back to back and uh, the early 2000s looked to be a status quo until of course the summer of 2003, that £20 million match which sparked the purchase of Roman Abramovich, the big spending, the Claude Makélélé, the Didier Drogba, the Iron Robin, the Petr Cech, I could go on but I'd be here all day. And within a year, despite finishing second, which was a Premier League record for Chelsea, Claudio Ranieri, he was out. They got to the Champions League semi-finals, it didn't matter. Chelsea had the sexy new special one, the European champion, the one that wasn't one of the bottle, he was in, Jose Mourinho. And in this Julier Benitez Mourinho paradigm in which we existed in the 2000s, Liverpool only really had... One real title charge. They finished second in 2001-2. But for me, that was a title race between Arsenal and United. United dropping off dramatically at Arsenal with that amazing run at the end of the season. And United sort of misfiring at the end of the season, losing to Arsenal on the penultimate week of the season, giving up the second place to Liverpool. I wouldn't class that as a Liverpool title charge. 2009, completely different story. This was a season where... Chelsea was still trying to replace Jose Mourinho, the best manager they ever had. They had Avram Grant. Obviously, he failed. They had big Phil Scolari. He failed dramatically. Gus Hiddink was steadying the ship in interim charge. He'd win an FA Cup. Liverpool would begin the 2010s with the threat of administration. They plummeted out of the Champions League. Rafa Benitez was succeeded by a slew of managers like Kenny Dalglish returning, Roy Hodgson, Brendan Rodgers... Whilst Chelsea were collecting the Premier League under the likes of Jose Mourinho, Carlo Ancelotti, Antonio Conte. This was a rivalry that wasn't of the bottle, to quote Mourinho. It wasn't a domestic rivalry, but it did have its roots, its beginnings in the domestic final that I spoke of earlier. The, one of the best League Cup finals for me ever, in my lifetime anyway. 
the League Cup final 2005. So we've got John Alarisa bulleting in an opener in Cardiff inside of a minute. Stephen Gerrard dredged Mourinho out of the mud with an own goal, 15 minutes from time, and then what ensued was a calamity of extra time. You've got Drogba and Kesman scoring for Chelsea. You've got Antonio Nunez scoring for Liverpool. Mourinho hushing the Liverpool crowd who were baying for his blood on the touchline. I always remember that. It was probably the highlight of the game for me, watching as a, as a sheer neutral. And the next tie they would play together would be, of course, a certain Champions League semi-final in 2005. The first leg was goalless, as were the two group stages, group stage matches between the two the following season. And, yeah, you might be forgiven for thinking Liverpool versus Chelsea in the Champions League group stage as well. That, of course, happened because of the goal from the moon from Luis Garcia and the subsequent Istanbul recovery by Liverpool against AC Milan. And Liverpool finishing fifth meant they had to go through the qualifiers and going through the qualifiers as champions with five, or potentially five, because Everton were knocked out of the qualifiers, it barred Liverpool Liverpool from being eligible for same-nation rules in the group so they could draw against Chelsea, against Man United, etc. Another layer on that rivalry that summer was, um, despite winning the Champions League in Istanbul, Steven Jarrod was almost going to go to Chelsea. One of the very, very first videos I made on this channel was, what if Steven Jarrod went to Chelsea? Check that out on the YouTube there. Of course, Gerrard wouldn't leave. Chelsea won the league again under Mourinho. But it was Gerrard in... He took the 2006 Cup final, the consolation, really. He took it by the scruff of the neck, the two goals, the goal in the final minute, the iconic goal, and a penalty in a win against West Ham in Cardiff. Who'd they beat to get there? Of course. In the semi-final at Old Trafford, they only beat Chelsea. Luis Garcia again breaking the hearts of Mourinho of Chelsea. Reese scoring again too. Chelsea did the double in the league in... 05 and 06, they exchanged wins in the league the following season. And for the fifth and sixth time in two years, again in the semi-final, the pair met in the Champions League. This time though, Chelsea got the win in the home leg the first time round. Joe Cole's winner though in London was replied, with a Dan Agger effectively equalising in the Anfield leg. And it went down to penalties, and just like in Istanbul in 2005, Liverpool won out. Jeremy and I and Robin missing for Chelsea. Pepe Reina becoming the hero as Steven Gerrard hammered home the advantage in the penalty. Liverpool went on to their second final in three seasons, although this time they'd lose to AC Milan in Athens. By this time, Manchester United were dominating domestically, though. They'd won the Premier League in 2007, 2008 and 2009. Sir Alex Ferguson had won the treble in terms of three league titles in a row twice. But come April, it had quickly become a tradition that Chelsea would play Liverpool in the Champions League. This year, though, was no different. Liverpool took the lead through Cout in the semi-final, and it looked as though Liverpool's domination of Chelsea in Europe would continue. Now, Chelsea definitively had a power over Liverpool domestically. They had won the league, of course. They won the cup finals over them, of course. The only big win that Liverpool truly had over Chelsea for me, in terms of... Domestic Cup competitions was the FA Cup semi-final in 2006. But in Europe, though, it seemed like a completely different story. You've got the quote-unquote Anfield Knights under the lights, the trademark, the the entire aura around Anfield on a European night just hit differently. Even though you had Old Trafford, Emirates, Stamford Bridge, the Yeti had grounds that rival fans would call libraries, they would obviously on big nights like this, become 
a cauldron, but nothing like Anfield. And unfortunately, though, for Chelsea, for, for Liverpool rather, the tide turned on the 94th minute. John Anarisa heading in the wrong way, going into the top corner at 94 minutes. Chelsea get the away goal. Chelsea have the advantage going into their first ever home second leg against Liverpool. The home second leg coming a day after an all-English final, a very first all-English final was promised because of Paul Scholes and Man United's 1-0 win over Barcelona. Chelsea and Liverpool just went mental at Stamford Bridge in the second leg. Didier Drogba scoring twice. The second in extra time, though, did kill the game off a 3-2 win. Chelsea, who'd won, who'd lost in the semi-finals in 2005 and 2007, finally took their seat amongst the elite of the elite, reaching the Champions League final in Moscow against Manchester United. Of course, as we know, they would lose on penalties to Manchester United. But by the following April, you better believe that them and Liverpool were paired up once more. In the 2008-09 season, where Liverpool finally performed a Premier League double over Chelsea, they'd signed the likes of Fernando Torres. They were mounting a title charge. They were turning the tide in the Premier League. They'd beaten Manchester United 4-1 at Old Trafford. But two weeks and around prior than planned by the universe in, in numerous previous seasons, a quarter-final it was. And for the first time ever in Europe, Chelsea won at Anfield. Hiddink was the man to orchestrate that. Two Branislav Ivanovic goals and another one from Drogba in a 3-1 win for the London club. They were effectively, with those three away goals, one and a half feet into the, uh, into the semi-finals. But back in London, Chelsea didn't make it easy for themselves. You've got Fabio Aurelio sneaking in a free kick. You've got Xabi Alonso scoring a first-half penalty and... Half-time, you've got Liverpool thinking, hold on, we could actually win this year. They led 2-0. They, lead, they needed just one more goal. And then the game just went simply nuts in the second half. All pragmatism was thrown out the window. Didier Drogba scored again against Liverpool. You've got Alex, the centre-half. He pissed a free kick just into the top corner. It was amazing. Frank Lampard got a double either side of two more Liverpool goals. 4-4. And easily one of the most entertaining games between the two teams. Rafael Benitez will be gone the following season. Mourinho, of course, winning the Champions League the following season. But this time, obviously, as part of the treble with Inter Milan. Meanwhile, Chelsea would lose that. That semi-final to Barcelona, thanks to an Andres Iniesta final minute equaliser. Them out on away goals. Barcelona, of course, going on to win that Champions League against Manchester United. Chelsea would have to wait until 2012 to win their very first Champions League. Liverpool's failure to qualify from the group in 2009 meant no more Chelsea versus Liverpool matches in the Champions League. They haven't played each other in the Champions League since. They would have, though, if Liverpool beat Real Madrid last week. Now Chelsea play Real Madrid for the very first time, perhaps a new rivalry going into the 2020s if the Champions League stays as it is, which, you know, doesn't look likely. And, of course, Liverpool would win their sixth and perhaps final Champions League in 2019 beating Tottenham Hotspur in the final in Madrid. I asked you, what was your favourite Liverpool against Chelsea match from this time? And, of course, many suggested the 4-4 in 2009. You've got George, Joseph Kiffin, Matty Mack, Joe, 10 in the whole podcast, they all said 4-4 in 2009. You've also got suggestion of the ghost goal match from Joseph Kiffin, Joe, Harry Holland and Nick Hale as well. Arguably the most iconic because it does lead to the Istanbul game. In terms of the match, without the outside context, the 4-4 is fantastic. Just absolutely fantastic. 
Now we've got a couple of uh, George obviously being a Chelsea fan, Joseph Kiffin being a Liverpool fan. We've got some good suggestions here as well from George, the Chelsea fan. We've got Drogba putting Liverpool to the sword in the semi-final in 2008. Chelsea beating Liverpool 4-1 in 2005 in the League the League Cup final of 2005, the £20 million match and Chelsea beating Liverpool 4-0 in 2001, which does feature a goal from Samuel Dalla which is a, a name, a throwback Thursday name, if ever, if ever I heard one a day early. Joseph Kivin on the other hand, he says Fernando Torres' last-minute double in 2009. You've also got the the Suarez bite in the 2-2, the, the slip, of course, the Salah Thunder bastard, as he, as he states it, and the list goes on and on, and he's, he says he's probably forgetting more, and yeah, probably, and Joe, he says the Risa own goal, and... Yeah, that turned the tide for Chelsea, at least in Europe, as it resulted in their first win over Liverpool in European competition. And speaking of Europe, we're going to Italy after this short break in The Table Never Lies. Welcome back. We're in Italy. We're in the Serie A of 2005-06, which means only one thing. It means that the table that I'm about to read out to you, which was 15 years ago today, doesn't matter one bit because it's Calcio Poly day, um, Calcio Poly season rather. So this is the table as it looked in 2006, 15 years ago to the day. You've got Juventus on 81 points, leading AC Milan on 76, Inter Milan on 71, and Fiorentina rounding out the Champions League places in 60, on 65 points. You've got Roma and Lazio battling for the UEFA Cup spots there. Chievo, Palermo, Livorno just outside the UEFA Cup spots. Parma, Empoli, Sampdoria, Escoli. Udinese, Reggiana, Siena and Cagliari above the dotted line. Meanwhile, below it, Messina, Lecce and Treviso. The latter two looking very, very doomed there adrift. So, of course, this by is by no means how the table would finish because of the Calcio Poly scandal. And that is a story, of course, for a deep dive. But we may as well discuss in brief what it meant whilst we're here on the Table Never Lies series. So we've got Juventus there, top on 81 points. They will be relegated, of course, finishing on 91 points, which is the biggest points tally for a relegated team, of course. They wouldn't face a points deduction, just a straight throwing out of the league, which meant they keep the 91 points for a reason, on uh, at least on the Wikipedia page and any other table that I've looked at. And how pertinent that has become this week. Yeah. Uh, who would win the league? Not AC Milan in second, but Inter Milan. Whilst Juventus were stripped of their league title from the previous season in 2005, Inter Milan collected the title despite finishing 12 points behind AC Milan. So let's get a bit deeper in. So the Calcio Poly scandal was uncovered in May 2006 from a series of telephone interceptions and teams within Serie A were implicated in selecting favourable referees. Teams that include the biggest team in the land, Juventus, a team that has been suspected for a while if... uh, you see the 2001-2 edition for that one and the, um, a certain penalty that they should have conceded but didn't anyway. Other teams that were implicated were Reggiana, Lazio, Fiorentina and AC Milan. Original punishments. They saw Fiorentina and Lazio relegated to Serie B and points deductions. However, upon appeal, both clubs would retain their place in Serie A for the following season with Fiorentina starting on minus 15, Lazio starting on much better, minus 3. Milan and Reggiano were punished with minus 8 and minus 11 respectively and all of those deductions were coming to force for the 2006-07 season. Not only hampered by relegation to Serie B, Juventus were due to be deducted 30 points but of course that would be reduced to minus 9 and Juventus would come straight back up. 
What did it do for the table, though? So in the 2005-06 season, you've got the following teams with 30-point deductions. You've got Fiorentina, Milan, Lazio, all on 30 points, wiped from their tallies. It meant that Lazio just staved off relegation by just three points. It meant that Messina were reprieved from relegation, thanks to Juventus finishing 20th. It meant that Fiorentina fell from third, a Champions League spot, to ninth, not even in Europe. It meant that Milan fell from first, after Juve's punishment, to third meaning that they would miss out on the Champions League in 2006-07, at least the group stages, of course. They would still qualify for the qualifiers, and of course, that Champions League in 2007, as Liverpool fans know all too well, they would win. In Juventus's absence, you've got Chievo making the Champions League qualifiers, and in the absence of Lazio and others, Palermo and Livorno were granted access into the UEFA Cup. How would they do? Well... Kiev were beaten 4-2 in the qualification phase for the Champions League by Levski Sofia. Palermo went out in the UEFA Cup groups on goal difference and Livorno just scraped through the groups but went out to the eventual finalist which we spoke of last week in Espanyol. Lecce and Treviso would go down. Treviso have since been refounded twice in 2009-2013. They now play in the sixth tier of Italian football and Lecce, well they were relegated last season and currently inhabit second in Serie B. Quite what that means in today's world, speaking to you on Monday, of course it could all change by Wednesday, but quite what that means today is, is anybody's guess, who really knows, and um, we'll go on to some fan suggestions, so tending the whole podcast, what stands out for him has to be the loyalty of Del Piero, Nedved, Buffon, Mauro Camaronese, David Trezeguet, when so many others jumped ship, you've got the rise of Marquisio and Givinco, and everything that Zabina did at defence was great. And Nick Hale says, truly magnificent players, but never commanded the same aura as Milan, despite possibly being better. And I I do agree with that because Milan did probably have the better team and probably, arguably, inarguably perhaps, the better, the better management staff behind it. You've got the fantastic 4-3-1-2 that Ancelotti would play to allow that midfield, which was just so good, the... Uh, Perlo Sedov and Gattuso in behind Kaka, who would then play. It was almost like a diamond, but it was three insanely good midfielders putting the allowing Kaka to just venture forward and effectively a four-three-three at times. And I really enjoyed them around that time. And whilst Juventus did have Nedved, you did have Del Piero, Buffon, who were probably the best players in the world in the early two thousands, mid two thousands by position. Nedved was arguably, well, inarguably because he did win that Ballon d'Or in 2003. You've got Del Piero, probably one of the best goal scorers, best creative attackers in the on the planet at that time. You've got Buffon, who's maybe one of the best goalkeepers ever to have lived. But Milan were just that team. They had Maldini, they had Stam, Cafu. I mean, the, the team, team-wise, as a unit, tactically, managerially, Milan were just superior, far too superior for me. And it shows, in the microcosm, Milan beating Juventus in the 2003 Champions League final. But not only that, of course, Ancelotti guiding them to the Champions League in 2007. And another final in between, though, to be fair, in 2005, which they could have easily won on another day. But I'm not going to anger any Liverpool fans there by saying they should have done. Anyway, we'll move on. We'll close today's show off with the 2000s trivial teaser. And we have got... 
some correct answers this week. Welcome back and we'll close things out with the today's teaser answer and well done too. I'm thinking of a footballer which is a a very apt podcast, very apt Twitter account and a very apt listener for uh, to get that answer correct. And of course, well done to Mark Burner, serial correct answer winner. Again, guessing that I am Dezue was the correct answer, who's of course a centre-back, and of course a centre-back who had been managed by Steve Bruce and Paul Jewell and who had played alongside the likes of Teddy Sheringham, Paul Merce and Kasper Schmeichel, Tim Sherwood and David Unsworth. Congratulations to you two there and we're remaining at centre-back for today's answer. And Today's answer, he's been managed by Terry Venables, he's been managed also by Carlos Queiroz. He's played alongside the likes of Quinton Fortune, David Batty, Ian Hart, Harry Kewell and Rio Ferdinand. Once more for those in the back, he's a centre-back, he's been managed by Terry Venables, Carlos Queiroz, played alongside Quinton Fortune, David Batty, Ian Hart, Harry Kewell and Rio Ferdinand. The answer will be revealed next week on the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast, episode 39 it will be next week, and episode 39 is slightly Arsenal-heavy because we'll be talking about their run to the Champions League final in 2006. We're also going to take a look at a nearly season in 2008-9 where they played in a semi-final against Manchester United. Elsewhere on that show, the table never lies, we'll be going to England, and of course, you've got to believe, we'll be talking about Mourinho again in the 2005-06 season. Over there on YouTube where we do our what-ifs, we're going to be talking about the following topics. The 1998 UEFA Cup Final, the 1990s, Real Madrid, Fabio Capello, Hamburg, Heart of Midlovian, World Cup Managers, the best World Cup Managers, Werder Bremen and the man himself, Sven-Goran Eriksson. We'll be here again, same time next week. Anywhere you get your podcast, anywhere reliable where you get your podcast, Acast, Spotify and Apple. But until then, see you there. Podcast Network.